Good evening. It's eight o'clock in Yerushalayim. This is webyeshiva.org, and it's time to begin our regular halacha shir. Uh, our topic uh, this evening is the length of the synagogue services. And uh, before we get into the sources uh, dealing with this issue, let me make an introductory comment. If you want to ask a question uh, during the class, feel free to type your question on chat. I will see your question on my screen, of course, and then I will be able to incorporate the answer to your question in uh, in the ongoing shiur. Now, uh, uh, the basic structure, the organization uh, of the material is basically going to be along the following uh, the following pattern. Uh, first, we're going to begin looking at the attitudes of the great rabbis through the generations to long prayers and short prayers. And, and uh, although although the rabbis have not had a lot to say about the value of longer prayers or the value of shortening prayers, uh, there are some significant ideas, attitudes which they had, and then we, we're going to survey them. And on that basis, we're then going to turn to the halachic sources, exactly what is required, uh, what is optional, uh, what can be left out, what has to be included in, we'll, we'll, we'll see the, the, the halachic details afterwards. Let's begin uh, looking at the sources. I know how to do this. I'll click over here. Okay. Now, um, I'm not going to bother uh, telling you where I draw the sources from because you have the sources uh, exactly on the screen, a chapter and verse where I'm taking these things from. So uh, if you want to uh, you know, look up the sources and see what mistakes I've made, I'm not a great typist, and and uh, well, well, feel free to check out the sources yourself. Um, you have them exactly on the screen. Uh, what it says in the verse, what it says in the verse in the Torah happens to be from Sefer Mishlei. What it says is, uh, Don't overstay your welcome in your friend's house. Of course, it's nice to visit your friend. But don't overstay your visit. Pen uh, lest he have enough of you and he come to hate you. That's what happens when you overstay your visit. Well, the idea is fairly simple and straightforward. But let's see the attitudes of the great rabbis and what they uh, what we can learn about their attitudes from this verse. The Gra, the Gaon Mevilna, hard to point to a more influential authority in the history of rabbinic thought than the Gra, the Gaon Mevilna, uh, uh, early 18th century uh, uh, Lithuania. He uh, comments on this, or he wrote a whole commentary on the book of uh, Proverbs on Sefer Mishlei, and this is extracted from that uh, commentary on the verse at hand. Uh, don't overstay your visit in your friend's house, is what the verse says. The comment of the Gra, the comment of the Gaon Mavilna is as follows. Isn't it sort of obvious he thinks that you shouldn't overstay your visit? We really need Shlomo HaMelech. We really need King Solomon to teach us this important idea that you shouldn't overstay your visit. Isn't it sort of Obvious, shouldn't everyone be able to figure that out himself? Shouldn't everyone be able to figure that out herself? Well, uh, ah, but there's a, a, an inner meaning, uh, not the simple, straightforward chat, not the simple, straightforward meaning of the verse, but uh, a hint to another idea which teaches us a lot about the Gros attitude towards prayers in the synagogue. Don't overstay your visit in your friend's house. Well, what is being referred to by your friend's house? Hey, Lubate Knesset. What is your friend's house? Your friend is a Kodesh Baruch your friend is God. His house is the synagogue. And, uh, well, uh, the Grand knew full well the difference between Pshat, the simple, straightforward meaning, and uh, 
uh, and uh, uh, drashot such as these. But this is the way he, he darshins the verse. This is his midrashic understanding of the verse. The verse is coming to teach us, don't overstay your welcome in the synagogue. I know, namely, um, one should not lengthen one's prayers. More than three hours. Three hours is maximum tops that you should be praying in the synagogue. More than that is overstaying your visit. Now, um, this is not the uh, uh, the forum in which we uh, have to, in which we would discuss uh, the relationship between simple meaning of the verse and the midrashic understanding of the verse in the thinking of the Grah. In order to to analyze that question, we would have to go through a lot of comments of the Grah, a lot of this commentary on different verses. Uh, but but one point is perfectly clear, namely, according to the Grah, the amount of time that you should spend in the synagogue as a maximum, a ceiling, and no one should be praying there for more than uh, than three hours. Uh, if after if after the prayers you, know, you hang around and you have uh, uh, you have kiddish, if after the the prayers you, you hang around in the in the synagogue and have a have a shiur, you you, you, you do other things that that's okay. It's the lengthening of the lengthening of the prayers beyond three hours, which is objectionable, according to the. Uh, According to the uh, according to the Gondonoma, and um, well, uh, many of the uh, many some of the disciples of the Grah made their way to Eretz Israel. The first Ashkenaz community in Eretz Israel consisted of disciples of the Grah, and, and therefore Minhag Ashkenaz here in Eretz Israel is largely the minhag of the Grah. There, there are tons of examples. Yeah, yeah, we're going to get to the sources for three hours in a moment. The, uh, uh, the, 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 the many examples of, of minhagim, which are commonly observed in the synagogues, in Eretz or Ashkenaz synagogues, which have their origin in the thinking of the Grah, have their origin in the thinking of the Ga'on Mavilna. Um, unlike Ashkenaz synagogues outside of Israel, where the influence of the Grah was minimal as far as Minhagim are concerned. After all, the German Jews, the Polish Jews, the Hungarian Jews, you know, all of the all of the different sub-communities within the Ashkenaz world had their minhagim clearly in place long before uh, the days of the Grand Name. They did not give them up. But in Eretz Israel, where the Ashkenaz community was founded by the disciples of the Grand, here in Eretz Israel, uh, the minhagim of the Grand are largely definitive. For example, and there's so many examples, that the Grand held that, that every Shabbat and every Yom Tov when it comes time to read the Haftarah, the prophetic uh, reading after Kriya Torah, according to the Grah, the prophetic reading, the Haftarah, must always be read from a scroll, a parchment scroll, written by a scribe in the kosher way, exactly the same way that a Sefer Torah is written. And here in, in Eretz Yisrael, in the overwhelming majority of Ashkenaz synagogues, that indeed is still the practice as well. I didn't, do a, I didn't do a survey and count up the, the different shuls to see what they do. But surely in, in my neighborhood and in other neighborhoods where I have lived, that's exactly what the Ashkenaz synagogues do. When, when, when all of this began, when the, when the uh, Ashkenaz community in, in Eretz Israel got on its feet and all of this came into play, uh, one of the great rabbis, Rav, uh, Rav Zevin, Rav Zevin, uh, was unhappy with this particular phenomenon, with this uh, embracing of the minhagim of the Grah, because he pointed out that in even in Lithuania, 
most people were not following the minhag of the Gra. Uh, indeed, in Vilna itself, uh, the only synagogue in which his minhagim, in which the minhagim and the Gra were being followed, was the, the synagogue in which he actually davened himself. So it was a minority practice in uh, Ashkenaz communities in Europe, limited to one synagogue where the Gra himself davened. So Rav Zevin was not happy about its general uh, adoption in Eretz Israel, but historically that's what happened, and we're going to see later when we come to the halachic discourse whether or not we're, we're stuck with that or whether there's some some uh, room for changing bin Hagim. Let's go one step further. There's another verse in the Torah. Moshe Yado says in the Torah that when Moshe Rabbeinu held up his hands, uh, Gavar Yisrael, the Jewish army, was uh, would prevail. And when Moshe Rabbeinu put his uh, his hand, his arms down, then the uh, Amalekites would prevail. There was a war between the Amalekites and the, uh, the Bnei Israel on the way from Egypt to Eretz Israel. Everyone knows about that. And uh, Moshe Rabbeinu was observing the battlefield from uh, the top of a hill. When his arms were up, the Jews won. When his arms went down, the the uh, the Amalek uh, was uh, Amalek got the upper hands. Now the Chazal in the Mishnah understand this in the following way: Chazal in the in the Mishnah asks a very simple, straightforward question: Do the arms of Moshe Rabbeinu wage war? How on earth does some kind of magic? When Moshe Rabbeinu raises his arms and the, the, the Jewish forces prevail on the battlefield, what on earth is the connection between Moshe Rabbeinu raising his arms and the, and the Jews prevailing on the battlefield? Well, the mission has a simple, straightforward answer. When Moshe Rabbeinu would raise his arms, the Jewish forces notice that on the battlefield. They would raise their eyes to Avinu Shabbat they would uh, uh, turn their thoughts to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, to the sublime, and as long as their kavana, as long as their intentions were pure, they would prevail. When Moshe Rabbeinu got tired and he lowered his uh, his hands, all of a sudden the, uh, the, the Jews were distracted from the purity of their thought, from the uh, kavanas which they had had, and, uh, and, and they began to lose uh, was, uh, on the battlefield. The Ramban, in his commentary on this verse, Ramban, 13th century Spain, after the Reconquista in the Christian period, when Moshe Rabbeinu would lower his hands, Ramban knew the difference between the simple, straightforward meaning of the verse and a Midrashic understanding. As far as the Pshat is concerned, the, the straightforward, literal meaning of the verse, as far as that's concerned, when he just got too tired and he didn't have enough strength to keep his arms up, he noticed that Amalek would prevail. He therefore instructed Aharon and Hur, each of them, to stand on one side and he, he instructed each of them to hold up one hand so that both his hands would be held on high. <speaking in Hebrew> that the, he should have some help in holding up his hands so he wouldn't get so tired. Okay, that's the simple, straightforward understanding of the meaning of the verse. The Rabbotainu and our great rabbis, this is, these are still the words of the Ramban, our great rabbis, Abruba Midrash said in the Midrash as follows. Uh, he's about to quote a Midrash on this verse, which gives a Midrashic understanding. And the Midrash he's about to quote is from the Sefer Habahir. Now, the, the Sefer Habahir is not what most people call a Midrash. Uh, what most people call a Midrash is the Midrash Rabbah, the Tanhuma. There's a whole body of Midrashic literature 
which is normally called Midrash. This particular sefer does not belong to the category of literature, which is normally called Midrash. This sefer is a hardcore Kabbalistic work. Um, back in the, in the in the high Middle Ages, back in the days of the Ramban, uh, this book was attributed to the Tanaim, to the great rabbis of the Mishnahic period. Uh, historians have uh, different uh, opinions. Uh, the authorship is not 100% clear here, but it is a hardcore Kabbalistic work, which is a distinct genre, a distinct body of literature separate from Midrash. Nonetheless, the Ramban quotes it here. We're about to get the quotation, and he calls it a Midrash. The Ramban was, among other things, one of the great mystics, one of the great Kabbalists of the medieval period. And his commentary on the Torah, which we have on the screen an example, but his commentary on the Torah was one of the most important uh, uh, guides to Kabbalistic thought in the Middle Ages. Over and over and over again, the Ramban explains things Kabbalistically. And we're about to get a Kabbalistic understanding of the verse. Let's see what the so-called Midrash, what the Sefer HaBahir, let us see what the Kabbalistic understand, the mystical understanding of the verse is. Did Moshe Rabbeinu's hands cause the Jews to prevail or the Amalekites to prevail? We know the answer to that question in the Mishnah. It all had to do with whether or not the Jewish forces were inspired to rely upon Avinu Shemayim, upon God in heaven. That's the answer of the Mishnah. But the Sefer Abayir, the Kabbalistic understanding, is different. Ella, rather. Asur l'adam l'shot shalosh shot kapav prusot l'shemayim. Whenever engaged in prayer, and Moshe Rabbeinu was surely praying for a Jewish victory on the battlefield in the war between Bnei Yisrael and Amalek, Moshe Rabbeinu was surely praying for Jewish victory, and prayer should never last more than three hours. Moshe Rabbeinu kept his arms extended for a maximum length prayer, three hours, and then he had to lower his arms. Well, uh, of course, uh, this is not the pshat, the the simple, straightforward meaning of the verse, but this is the way the Kabbalists explained it. This gives us a Kabbalistic uh, um, uh, uh, dimension of understanding what is going on. And the bottom line is prayer should be limited to three hours tops. Moshe Rabbeinu, who is greater than Moshe Rabbeinu, would not pray for more than three hours, even though the Jews were in the midst of a battle on the battlefield and surely needed divine assistance every moment, but 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 he, he, it's just wrong, wrong, wrong to daven to pray for more than three hours at a time. Well, uh, um, uh, we see here that uh, uh, the Kabbal- the Kabbalistic idea which the Ramban is presenting us is clearly the source of the practice of the gro, the gaon of Mavilna on the previous screen. When the gro, the gaon Mavilna on the previous screen said, don't pray for more than three hours in the synagogue, that's over, overstaying your visit uh, with God, that's overstaying your visit in the synagogue if you pray for more than three hours. And we see clearly where he got that idea from. It's a Kabbalistic idea which comes straight from the Sefer Habahir, one of the, uh, and that, that Sefer is, uh, it's earlier than the Zohar, but it's uh, 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 not as important as the Zohar, but, but right up there together 
with the Zohar as uh, an important source of Kabbalistic thought. Okay, DeGraw said, ceiling of three hours in prayer. Uh, the Ramban agrees. Well, historically, the other way around, the Gra agrees with the Ramban, and uh, uh, the, the whole the whole idea is of a Kabbalistic nature. Next, Rav Menachem uh, Azaria, Rav Menachem Azaria from Rafano in Italy. Uh, he was um, he he's from the 16th century uh, in Italy, and back in the 16th century, he he was the big name. He, he was uh, he was a heavyweight not only in halacha his tribute his halachic writings were immensely influential in subsequent generations but he was also one of the great kabbalists of the uh, of the sixteenth century it's unusual to have uh, a, a single authority a single great mind uh, in both worlds the Halachic world and the Kabbalistic world, the Rabban, combined both. And Rav Menachem uh, Azaria from Fano in Italy, he combined both the Gra, the Gra as well, was, uh, was a gadol, was great, both in the world of Kabbalah and in the world of Halacha. In any event, in the, here we are in the, in the 16th century, uh, Rav Menachem Azaria from Fano, he wrote the Sefer, Asara Mamarot, again, a hardcore Kabbalistic work, uh, just as his Halachic works were immensely influential. Now, similarly, his Kabbalistic works were immensely influential in Kabbalistic circles. Well, he too is aware of what it says in the Sefer, Sefer Habahir about not praying for more than three hours. You're not allowed to hold your hands on high in prayer. More than three hours. Hakavana, the whole, the whole idea here, he explains, well, why, well, what's wrong with praying for more than three hours? Why did Moshe Rabbeinu limit his prayers to a maximum of three hours? Why? Uh, Couple centuries later, is the Graw going to say, "Don't daven more than three hours"? What's wrong with davening more than three hours? Well, the idea is shalom lahatriah klape mala, not to make a nuisance of yourself with God. After all, that's what it said in the verse that we began with today. Don't overstay your visit in your friend's house. Your friend is happy to have you visit, but there's a limit, you know. Uh, how long are you planning to sleep over in my house? Uh, there's, a, there's a limit to how long the welcome can be. And uh, who is your friend in whose house you are visiting? Well, that's the uh, the, the synagogue, that's the Beit Knesset when you're when you're praying with God, so as not to make a nuisance of yourself, so as not to bother God unnecessarily, you have a three-hour maximum uh, to pray. That's why the Kohanim have only three uh, blessings which they recite. Why are the Kohanim limited to only three blessings when they, uh, when they bless the people? And incidentally, a Kohen who adds an extra bracha, the Kohanim are absolutely limited to three brachot. A Kohen who would add an extra bracha or two, any number of extra brachas, would be guilty of violating the commandment of the Torah, Lotasif. There are 613 commandments, and anyone who adds to a commandment is guilty of violating the Torah prohibition of Lotasif, the prohibition of not adding to the to the mitzvahs. Uh, well, that three is is the key here. Three is the maximum number. Bracha v'sha'achat la'avraham shniya shlishit liyakov. The three hours, the maximum of three hours that you can spend in prayer, are kabbalistically related to the characteristics of Avraham Yitzchak. And uh, Yaakov, in another series of Shiorim, 
we could talk about the way the Kabbalists understood the characteristics of the three great patriarchs, and uh, that, that would dictate the nature of the prayer in the first hour, the nature of the prayer in the second hour, the nature of the prayer in the third hour, but the whole idea of limiting prayer to three hours tops, that is so as not to bother God too much, so as uh, not to make a nuisance of yourself. And then he asks, these are still the words of Menachem Azariah in the 16th century, Kolkachlama, what do you mean you don't want to bother God? God can't handle a little bit more prayer. Uh, somehow, somehow God is going to be, uh, is going to reject you if you have too much thanks or too much praise or too much, uh, too many bakashot or something. Well, what God's going to, God, God can be bothered by your prayer. Well, what on earth is that supposed to mean? He asks. Uh, it is the nature of God, and this too is a Kabbalistic idea, it is the nature of God to do good. It is the nature of God to want to shower good, goodness upon mankind. God wants to mashpia, wants to cause goodness to flow from the upper worlds to us. That's what God wants to do. Uh, Kabbalistically, it's our job to build the kalim, to build the utensils, the, the, the vessels which will hold the goodness when it comes down to us. But God, that's what God wants to do. He wants to send down goodness from the upper worlds to us. And uh, uh, the doesn't work two directions at the same time. During the period of time that you are sending up your prayers, well, during that period of time, while you are sending up your prayers, so the good is not going to descend. The the pipeline can only hold motion in one direction at a time. If you daven too much, so your prayers are going to go up, but if your prayers are going up, that meanwhile is stopping the goodness from coming down. Well, here we have a clear, Kabbalist, uh, uh, well, as clear as anything Kabbalistic can be, we have a clear understanding of the way the Kabbalists want to limit prayer to three hours. We understand why they want to limit the prayer to three hours, because God wants to send down good, and he has to wait for you to stop praying to do that. And uh, therefore, you don't want to pray too long. Bottom line, we have source after source after source, which uh, rooted in Kabbalistic attitudes, rooted in Kabbalistic thinking, put a cap, put a maximum on uh, on tefillah. Let's go one step further here. Voila. Kilot Yaakov. The, the, the sefer we're about to quote from is the uh, and as in all of my uh, shiurim, I, uh, I limit the sources that I present to you to only the, only the most important primary sources. There, there, there are tons of, uh, uh, of sources out there by more obscure rabbis, which are very interesting. Uh, there are tons of sources out there of uh, which uh, never had much impact on rabbinic thought, which happened to be very interesting ideas, as interesting as the ideas might be. In my shi'urim, I try to focus on the ideas which were widely embraced, the ideas which had great influence on rabbinic thinking through the generations. Well, Kilod Yaakov was also, uh, 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 also was an important author. The family name is Eulis, Ralph Eulis. But as with so many great rabbis, the family name is not well known in the yeshiva world. Uh, he's known just by the name of his svarim. And he's generally just called the Kilis Yaakov, or another famous book he wrote was the Maloha Ro'in. He's generally just called the Maloha Ro'in, or the Kilis Yaakov. Uh, talk about Rav Yulis uh, in the 19th century. He was a 19th century uh, Kabbalist. 
uh, talk about uh, Rav Yulis, most people will not know who you are talking about. Talk about the Sefer Kilis Yaakov or another Sefer he wrote, the Maloa Rowan. Oh, oh, he was an important, influential writer. Let's see what he says. He begins by uh, quoting the Mishnah. The Mishnah says, Hasidim Rishonim, the pious rabbis of earlier generations, when the Mishnah talks about the pious rabbis of the earlier generations, we're talking about a long time ago, right? Uh, uh, the the, the pre-Mishnaic pious rabbis, Hayuf Shohim Sha'achat, they would wait for one hour before praying. That is, when it came time to whatever it is, uh, they would not uh, come into the synagogue and just start prayer right away. They would first meditate for an hour uh, in, in order to have a, uh, in order to clear their minds of everything having to do with the mundane, secular world we live in. And after having prepared their minds, clearing their minds to be able to focus on the holy, to be able to focus on the prayer, after an hour, they would start praying. It took an hour to, to work up the proper concentration to be able to pray. Only after an hour of effort did they have the kavana necessary for prayer. Um, well, uh, they waited an hour before prayer. The Mishnah teaches us that their prayer lasted for one hour. And after their prayer, they needed a cool-off session for another full hour in order to cool off after the prayer in order to be able to return to mundane activities outside of the, uh, outside of the synagogue. The Sha'achat Acharat the one hour cool down period after prayers, Kidei Lahashot Mukhim, the Zachel in the Keva, Shalo Yisaku at Sha'achat Acharat Fila. The whole Kabbalistic thrust of the one hour prayer is to unify a God in the upper worlds and uh, the impact on yourself of that unification of God in the upper world uh, lasts for a full hour after you finish prayer. And therefore, you want to sit quietly and meditate for an hour after prayer. Okay, those are the Hasidim Rishonim. Those are the pious rabbis of early generations. An hour of work up before prayer, an hour of prayer, an hour of cool down, cool down time after prayer in order to return to mundane activities. Um, the Chazal and the Mishnah, then, of course, were very interested in the following question. Uh, uh, the whole process takes three hours, an hour of preparation, an hour of prayer, an hour of... Uh, uh, an hour afterwards, the whole thing takes three hours. Shachar's Mincha Mairi, there's nine hours right there in, in the day just devoted to prayer. The mission is, of course, very interested in the question is, when did they have time to do anything else? Uh, when did they have time to, uh, to learn, to learn Tosafus? When did they have time to learn Shulchan Aruch? I mean, when, when did they have time to learn Torah? Nine hours a day, every day, uh, devoted to, uh, Prayer and what surrounds prayer before and after is an awful lot. That's what the Mishnah is interested in. The Kabbalists say, Nimza, it turns out, it turns out that their engagement with the Holy, it turns out that their engagement with the Shechina, the divine presence, that's what prayer is all about, engaging with God. The entire process of gay engaging with God was three hours. Three hours before, three hours in active prayer, and then an hour, uh, an hour in preparation, an hour in active prayer, and an hour afterwards. More than three hours. The effort 
the mental effort required to for the unification of God in the upper spheres, the mental energy required for prayer, no one, not even the greatest rabbis of the earlier generations, not even the Hasidim Rishonim from the earliest generations of rabbis, no one has enough mental energy to devote more than three hours to prayer. The Hasidim Rishonim, the mission is concerned with what they, what, what, what they didn't have time for anything else in the course of the day. The Kabbalists look at things a little bit different. The Hasidim Rishonim surely would have spent more time in prayer if they could. Why did they not devote more time to prayer? Because no one, not even the greatest Hasid, not even the greatest pious, not even the greatest pious rabbi of the earlier generations, no one has the mental strength, no one has the mental capacity to uh, to direct his or her thoughts to the divine, to engage with the divine for more than for more than three hours. Afilu Moshe Rabbeinu, even Moshe Rabbeinu, who was surely the greatest of all time rabbis, couldn't hold his arms up, could not engage with God for more than three hours at a time. Well, if the if the greatest of the mitpalalim, if the greatest of rabbis could not engage, did not have the energy, did not have the strength, did not have the ability to engage with the holy for more than three hours, we surely cannot. And therefore, and therefore, this idea of the three-hour limit is firmly in place. And it's all rooted in the Kabbalistic understanding, which was given to us originally in the Sefer Habahir. Well, let's leave the historians to argue about whether or not that Sefer is really of Tanaitic origin from the period of Mishnah or from some subsequent period, but that's surely where the ideas come from. And if you think about it, the ideas are uh, are reasonable. They're, 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 there's there's some, some sense to the ideas. After all, anyone who takes prayer seriously, anyone who takes the engagement with God seriously, anyone who seriously views himself, anyone who seriously views herself as standing in the divine presence, the Shkina, that requires, uh, that requires a mental effort and has a limit to how long humans are able to do that. Correct. Uh, we no longer spend uh, 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 an hour in preparation. Uh, uh, even in the days of the Mishnah, this this practice had fallen or fallen into disuse. Back in the days of the Mishnah, the, the hour preparation and the hour cool time, that's something they remembered from the pious rabbis of previous generations. But even the rabbis of the Mishnah were not on the level to be able to do that. Even the rabbis of the Mishnah, although three hours is tops, even they uh, could not uh, engage with the holy for, for, for a full three hours. Let's go one step further. I've been going in chronological order, um, beginning with the earlier sources and now coming uh, down to the uh, to the nineteenth uh, century. Um, I have an extract which I photographed from a um, uh, from a, a Jewish newspaper. That 19th century Jewish newspapers, Jewish newspapers in general, but Jewish newspapers began in the 19th century. And uh, in Eastern Europe, uh, uh, most of the Jewish newspapers were in Hebrew, and some were in Yiddish. Uh, and, uh, well, let's see this, this letter that, um, that was written. Before we look at the letter, let me just point out who the author of the letter is. This is the letter which was written by uh, Yitzchak Diskin. Uh, Yitzchak Diskin was one of the great rabbis of Lithuania, uh, more famous for being one of the great rabbis of Yerushalayim, where he came to 
uh, later in his life, but he was a canon. He was uh, uh, one of the uh, great rabbis in, in Eastern Europe in the, in the 19th century. Let's see this letter which he wrote to the editor. It's dated in Lomza, Lomza, big town. Well, I suppose it still is a big town, but back in those days, there were a lot of Jews in, Lom, in Lomza. It was a, a major center of, uh, of uh, yeshivas. Uh, written on Kafkimo uh, Elul, that is getting very close to Rosh Hashanah time. Uh, very close to Rosh Hashanah, he sent in the following letter to the editor. Adani, sir. I hereby recommend to you, to you plural, to all of you who read this letter, I hereby recommend to everyone who reads this letter, that I recommend that everyone pray for uh, the shalom amongst the uh, uh, amongst the Jews, and everyone pray for what is good. Ki mefidati, for in my opinion, is perhaps correct, in my opinion, he expresses himself in a very modest way. It is perhaps correct, in my opinion, well, no one told him he had to write the letter. No one told him he had to send it into the, into the, into the newspaper and get it published. Uh, this is his opinion, even though he hedges his formulation and expresses himself in a very modest way. It would seem to me that it makes sense, in my opinion. Well, this is what he says. I must bring to the attention of all the Jews in all the places where they live. I must bring to the attention of all the Jews in all the Jewish communities it's a week before, a few days before Rosh Hashanah. That people, Jews, should please not spend a lot of time in prayer beyond Kesa on the day when the moon is hidden. Beyond Kesa on the day when the moon is hidden. Hey, when the moon is hidden, yeah, everyone knows that the Jewish holidays. Uh, so Pesach, everyone knows the Jewish holidays come on the, uh, uh, on the, uh, middle of the month, the middle of the Jewish month, the middle of the lunar month, where there's a full moon. Uh, the one Jewish holiday, which appears, which comes at the beginning of the month, where there's no moon at all, the moon is hidden, the moon is, is uh, totally occluded, that's Rosh Hashanah. So, so the, the, the day when the moon is hidden, that's Rosh Hashanah. That's our Yom Tov, when the moon is not is not a, in the sky. Uh, uh, my, my, please, fellow Jews, do not lengthen your prayers on the day when the moon is going to be covered. In a few days, it's going to be uh, Rosh Hashanah. Uh, Likratenu, that day of Rosh Hashanah is coming towards us. Lishalom, may it be. An auspicious day. No one uh, should uh, remain in the synagogue beyond midday. Midday is when the sun is directly overhead, right? Uh, uh, astronomical noontime, when the sun is directly overhead. That's exactly halfway between sunrise and sunset. Well, if you have a good calendar, it'll it'll tell you the time of sunrise, the time of sunset, exactly in the middle is astronomical noontime. And please, he says, please don't remain in the synagogue in prayer beyond noontime. The whole ha'am, yishmu v'yiru anathram, that everyone should have fear for his soul, that everyone should listen to what I say. And, uh, and take care of his and her soul. God will then be with us and God will protect us. God will then protect us from any evil or anything bad. And God will grant us a good new year. The new year will be crowned with everything 
that you can wish for, and you will be honored. Well, signed, Rav Yitzchak Diskin. So when we get down to the to the 19th century, we see at least one of the great rabbis uh, haranguing the people not to daven too long in the synagogue. Uh, at this point, after having surveyed the attitudes of the rabbis to long prayers, at this point, I want to turn to um, the, uh, the uh, what the postkim have to say. Uh, uh, postkim who define what the minimum requirements of prayer are. Uh, let, let's see what it says in the Shulchan Aruch. Uh, let's see uh, what the great rabbis in their halachic works instruct us to do. The attitudes of the rabbis, well, we've been going through that since the beginning of the class. Now let's turn to uh, the nitty-gritty bottom-line conclusions of exactly what is obligatory and exactly what is not. Uh, our first text is, of course, from the Shulchan Aruch. Since this is a halacha class, well, uh, everyone knows that the Shulchan Aruch is the most important uh, important halachic source we have. So the words of the Shulchan Aruch are as follows, and once again, the simon number and paragraph number you have if you wish to look it up. And I hope I've typed it correctly. Mitzvat Yom Tov, the commandment of Yom Tov, doesn't matter what the Yom Tov is, Pesach, Rosh Hashanah, whatever the Yom Tov is, every Yom Tov has a mitzvah. Well, and many mitzvahs. One of the mitzvahs that applies to every Yom Tov, to every Chag, Lechalko, Every Yom Tov should be divided, chatzion, the Beit Midrash, half in the synagogue, the chatzion and half for eating and drinking. That is, you have your spiritual endeavors on Yom Tov, and you have your physical endeavors on Yom Tov, and they must be balanced equally half of your time devoted to spiritual energy, prayer in the synagogue, learning learning Torah, spiritual activities, and an equal amount of time devoted to Oneg Yom Tov, devoted to enjoy physically enjoying the Yom Tov, eating and drinking. Um, uh, well, if the synagogue services go on too long, <laughs> that's going to impinge upon the other half of the Yom Tov, which is required, namely the Oneg part, the enjoyment part. The Oneg Yom Tov, enjoying Yom Tov, is a mitzvah, is a mitzvah of the Torah after all. And uh, the Samach de Bechagecha, it's a, uh, an obligation of the Torah to, uh, to have, eat and drink and enjoy yourself on Yom Tov. And according to the Shulchan Aruch, these two activities must be balanced in the sense that they occupy the same amount of time. And if you spend too much time in the synagogue, that's going to reduce the amount of time you can spend around the table with the family. Or if you have friends invited, well, the, uh, the, the, the eating and drinking, the oneg part of Yom Tov should be the same length as the spiritual exercise of Yom Tov, uh, praying and uh, and learning Torah. That's what the Shulchan Aruch says. The Mishnah Gura, uh, hard to point to a more influential modern commentary on the Shulchan Aruch, modern, uh, uh, beginning of the 20th century, beginning of the 20th century, not so long ago, well, even I, you, know, you guys remember the 20th century, it's not so long ago, the 20th century. The, um, well, most of you remember the 20th century. The, um, uh, Mishnah Brewer writes as follows. These are the words of the Mishnah Brewer. Bechad Kroktiv is a verse which says, Atzeret Tielechem, Yom Tov is for you. Ubechad Kro, there's another verse, Ktiv, where it is written, Atzeret Lashem Elkechap, 
Yom Tov is for God. Uh, two apparently contradictory verses. One says Yom Tov is for you, Lachem. The other says Yom Tov is for Hashem, uh, Lashem Elokecha. Ah, Al Therefore, the rabbis of the Talmud teach us, Therefore, the Talmud reaches the conclusion very quickly that both of these verses must be correct. And the only way for both of the verses to be correct is if, um, if you divide your day uh, uh, equally between spiritual activities and Oneg, enjoying the Yom Tov, Lachem, for you. Half for Torah and Tefillah, half for spiritual endeavors, half for you, namely eating and drinking for Oneg Yom Tov. So the, 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 the idea which the Shulchan Aruch requires is an idea which not surprisingly, is embraced by the Achalonim, Mishnabrura, early 20th century. Hard to point to a more influential, but safer than that. Let's go one step further. There we go. Um, uh, Shulchan Aruch was, of course, written uh, towards the beginning of the 16th century. Um, uh, Rav Karo, who wrote the Shulchan Aruch. He, he was born in uh, in Spain, and uh, that was in the generation where the Jews were expelled from Spain. Uh, he made his way to Tzfat, I think everyone knows that, uh, where the Shulchan Aruch was written. That, that's early 16th century. A uh, hundred years later, the 17th century, we begin to see the great commentaries on the Shulchan Aruch uh, being published. Uh, the text we're about to read from is the Magen Avram. Uh, I don't know which is the, the most, single most important commentary written on the Shulchan Aruch, but, but the Magen Avram will, will be on anyone's short list of the most important commentaries uh, on the Shulchan Aruch. In every standard edition of the Shulchan Aruch, it's always printed in the outside margins of the Shulchan Aruch, the commentary of the Magen Avram. In his name was Rav Avram Gabiner. Uh, Poland, the uh, 17th century, and, uh, and, and and once again, in the yeshiva world, that family name, Gambiner, is not well known. If you talk about the opinion of Rav Gambiner, most people will not have the vaguest idea who you're talking about. You have to call him the Magad of Ram, oh, the Magad of Ram. <laughs> That's a well-known safer of immense influence. Now, uh, before we look at his words, let me make a, a comment about the printing history of, of the Shulchan Aruch. So it's important to, it's important to pay attention to uh, where and when different sforum were published. Uh, the, um, the first edition of the Shulchan Aruch was printed in Venice, which in those days was a major publishing center. and was 1625, plus or minus one, uh, was the first edition of the Shulchan Aruch in Eretz Israel in those days. And when Yosef Karl lived in Svat, there, there was no publishing in those days. There were no, no printing houses, uh, no presses. And he had it printed in, uh, in, in Venice, which was a major printing center. The, um, uh, I remember once, uh, one, once I was uh, very concerned with establishing the correct text of a certain halacha in the Shulchan Aruch, in the laws of divorce, uh, the commentaries on the Shulchan Aruch uh, were of the opinion that the text of the Shulchan Aruch makes no sense at all, and one has to change the text, or has to correct the text, an error surely fell into the into the text, a printing error surely fell into the text of the, of the Shulchan Aruch, was suggested by the commentaries. Uh, I, I found that interesting, and the uh, I was working in, in, in the Library of Congress in Washington, so I ordered a, uh, a copy of the first edition of the Shulchan Aruch, uh, the Venice edition, uh, to see what the what, what the text had to say 
for the halacha that I was interested in. Uh, I got the, uh, the sefer that I had ordered, and I first opened it up to the title page to make sure I was looking at the correct edition. That I got, really got the sefer I, I ordered the first the first edition of the of the of the Shulchan Aruch, which is of course was without any commentaries, uh, just pure Shulchan Aruch commentaries had not yet been written, obviously. And uh, uh, studying the title page to get the the date and the place of publication to make sure I have the right edition in my hand, I could not help but notice that there's a decorative motif uh, around the borders of the title page, a decorative motif showing images of women without any clothes on. Uh, And I thought to myself, my, oh my, uh, what what is going on here? Uh, Was this uh, motif chosen because this volume of the uh, of the Shulchan Aruch deals with marriage and divorce. I wondered. I ordered up the other three volumes of the other three sections of the Shulchan Aruch. They all had the same decorative motif on the title page: uh, images of women without any clothes on. Uh, of course, what happened in those days was the uh, uh, we're talking about movable type, or right? this is after Gutenberg. The movable type, the uh, the letters were set in type, were set by uh, by Jewish typesetters. Uh, you had to be a rabbinic scholar in order to be able to set the type correctly. But the title page, that was an artistic woodcut. And the artists who made the woodcut for the title page, they were not even Jewish. They were artists whose business it was to make decorative uh, uh, decorative motifs for title pages. And uh, as was quite typical in Venice in those days, the motif they chose was uh, images of women without any clothes on. And remember, Rabbi Yosef Karo, the author, was in Tzfat, in Eretz Israel. He, of course, had no way of personally supervising the publication of his work in Venice. He, of course, had no idea what was going on in Venice, I suppose, in my imagination. But when he eventually got a copy, uh, he was unhappy with that, but uh, there's nothing to be done about it. It was already done. In any event, century later, we have the Mughan of Ram Rav Gambiner writing what is, if not the most important, truly one of the most important commentaries on the Shulchan Aruch. Uh, he, he writes now in the name of the Marshal. He's quoting the Marshal, Rav Luria. Rav Luria had lived almost uh, 100 years earlier. Rav Luria was the, the great rabbi in Eastern Europe who was at loggerheads and disagreed with the Ramah, Rav Moshe Israelis, on a huge number of topics. Those two rabbis uh, intellectually were engaged in argument over and over and over again, and they were both quite influential. In any event, the Marashal wrote as follows. Lo yimshach tefillah yoter mechatzot. Davening should never go beyond midday. Again, astronomical noontime, halfway between sunrise and sunset, when the sun is directly overhead. I said, sun directly overhead, uh, as though everyone is at the equator. But uh, when the sun is halfway in the passage from east to west, that's astronomical noontime. And the Marashal said, no prayers should extend beyond that. And we understand the reasoning. We, we've seen uh, all of the explanations and all of the reasons for this attitude. Masha Ma'arichim, Chazanim Nigunim, the Chazanim. Who, 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 go, who, go, who go to town on the melodies that they're singing. And it's the melodies which drag out the tefillah and make it longer and longer. Those long-winded chazanim, the long-winded chazanim do not count as half of the Yom Tov, which is for you to enjoy eating and drinking or whatever it is you enjoy doing. Uh, uh, it's, it doesn't belong to the half for you, and doesn't belong to the half which belongs to Hakadosh Baruch Hu. The long-winded melodies which the Chazanim give us, dragging the tefillah will be until after midday. That doesn't belong either 
belongs neither to the spiritual endeavors for Yom Tov, nor to the Oneg of Yom Tov, and therefore is just wrong, wrong, wrong. Nothing wrong with Nigunim as long as they're finished quickly. Quickly means not longer than Chatzot, not longer than astronomical noontime. So at this point, we're going to pause. We've begun looking at what the early poskim have to say about length of davening. We're going to pause now. Next time, we'll continue going chronologically and bring this down to contemporary times. Until then, I wish you a good week and eventually a good Shabbos. And look forward to seeing you all again uh, next week at this time. Until then, shalom, shalom.